Acts 19, 8 through 10. Let's pray. Our Father, as we approach your word this morning, surely we don't do so with the reverence or awe or expectation that it deserves. Will you make us, we ask, to know that you are God, that there is no other God beside you. What you declare by the word of your mouth happens, and the nations are as a drop in the bucket before you. You have graciously condescended to speak with your people through your holy word. You have made us, and we are yours. Moreover, you have kindly made us, your people, the sheep of your pasture. So we enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, and we bless your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 19, 8 through 10. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Amen. You may be seated. A man once gave a banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And he, another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you command has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. a familiar uh, parable to us and I just wonder what is the response of those who were invited from the streets and the highways and the byways those who were broken were in, and the poor and the travelers and the outsiders were invited to this banquet what would it have felt like to be welcomed into a great feast in the great hall of this great man unexpectedly I believe that this story from Jesus is best interpreted as, as uh, a reference to the Jews rejecting the Messiah and to the calling of the Gentiles, to the bringing in of the Gentiles. And in our passage, 
uh, puts this parable into action in real life. This is exactly what we see happening in our passage. Paul preaches the kingdom of God to the rightful heirs of the kingdom of God, but the rightful heirs reject the kingdom of God. So instead, the, the, the Gentiles, the wretched refuse, the, the filthy ones, the idolaters, receive the kingdom of God in their place. It's a theme that we see over and over and over again running through Acts. Now, 2,000 years later, many miles removed from Palestine, uh, personally, little, little interaction with Jews, um, much of our church history is Western and Gentile. I wonder, do we take the privilege of our invitation as Gentiles into the kingdom of God for granted? Do we still have a sense of wonder that we, even we, have been invited to the king's banquet? That even we, the nations of the earth, have been brought near by the blood of Christ and have been made partakers and even heirs in the kingdom of God. My prayer today is that we'll not only see this point uh, from a doctrinal perspective, but that we'll, we, we will be moved from doctrine to doxology over this reality in our lives. That we would be delighted and humbled by the plan of God, who, who would reach out to us poor sinners, Gentiles, miserable sinners, lost creatures, without God in the world, and make us his. That's something worth knowing, but also worth praising the Lord for. So we'll break the message into three parts. We'll begin by looking at the rightful heirs of the kingdom of God. Then we'll look at the welcomed wretched in our passage. And then we'll conclude by considering our own response. Paul's mindset is always to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That's his pattern in every city. To the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. He is the messenger. He's calling the invitees to come to the banquet. For him, he always goes to those who have been invited first, to the Jews first. If you'll think back to chapter 18, uh, Paul initially visited Ephesus on his way out of Corinth just briefly. And oddly enough, they wanted him to stay longer at the synagogue and preach longer at the synagogue. And again, oddly enough, he decided not to. But he said, if God wills, I'll come back. God willed, and he came back. He's back at the synagogue at Ephesus. And now, it it almost feels as if, finally, for once, in all his travels, the Jews are finally going to listen to him. It says in verse 8, He entered the synagogue, and for three months, three whole months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. Three months he got to spend with these Uh, Jews in the synagogue. And notice, it says he spoke boldly about the kingdom of God. Calvin points out that that Paul here didn't have a a three-month window because he was uh, timid about the gospel or because he just kind of tickled their ears and slipped in Jesus where he could. He preached Jesus boldly throughout the whole three months. God granted him this amount of time. So boldness in this context means that he was direct, he was clear, he was bringing to their ears what they needed to hear about the kingdom of God. 
We see him doing two things that he is doing consistently in his ministry. Is that is, he's reasoning and persuading. Reasoning and persuading. Presenting evidence, biblical evidence, trying to convince them, to try to move them from their position to a new position. And in this case, Luke summarizes it by saying, the kingdom of God. That was his message, the kingdom of God. And in the context of Acts in particular, the kingdom of God means that the promised messianic kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. That he was the one who would come and sit on David's throne and rule and reign from heaven. And we saw last week that this is part and parcel with the end time restoration promises. The coming of the spirit and power, the restoration of the people of God, and the bringing in of the Gentiles and of new creation. The Jews are the rightful citizens of the kingdom of God. They're the rightful heirs. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is, is the Christ. They're the rightful heirs of the kingdom of God. This is why Paul always has this to the Jew first and also to the Greek mindset. They're the rightful heirs. They're the ones who were initially invited to the banquet table. But sadly, they reject the invitation. They've declined to come to the banquet. They've declined entrance into the kingdom of God, preferring instead the domain of darkness. In verse 9, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. This way is, is... just a description of Christianity, the way of salvation. It kind of reminds us of uh, the way of life, the way of God, the way of truth. Uh, but clearly this way was not the way for some. And they began to spoke evil about it. And, and we can expect that, can't we? That people will speak evil of Christianity. That we're backward or out of touch or entrenched or bigoted or hateful or unthinking or or, uh, Richard Dawkins defines faith as blind trust in the absence of faith even in the teeth of evidence. That's malignment. That's not what we believe faith is. Calvin says that surely such is the power of the heavenly doctrine that it either makes people or makes the reprobate mad or else more obstinate. When they are urged by the truth, their secret poison breaks out. So also the Apostle Peter tells us in his epistle that we can expect to be maligned as Christians. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They speak evil against you. And in one sense, we'd expect that from Gentiles or unbelievers, uh, people, worldly men, right? But Jews are not worldly men in that sense. They're not about carousing and orgies and drunkenness, right? The Jews are, in an ethical sense, not worldly men. They have the law, they have the prophets, they have the covenants, the promises of Yahweh, and yet they have taken to maligning the gospel, speaking evil of the way and of their own Messiah. 
And it's one of the great tragedies that the Jews have ignored the Master's call to come to the banquet table. However, this was not outside of God's plan. Uh, God has not been jolted by this rejection. He's not had to do a course correct or come up with a plan B. This is a part of His plan. This is prophesied in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. They have provoked Me by those who are not gods, and I will provoke them by that which is not a people, and by a foolish nation I will enrage them. Indeed, this is being fulfilled before us in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, Romans eleven thirteen and 14. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make fellow, my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. In response to their hardness of heart, Paul leaves. This is what he often does. Uh, He doesn't stay and try to belabor the point or try to fight against the wickedness of these men. And as Calvin put it, he does not blaspheme the word of God by casting before dogs and swine the word of God. And and he says, He removed the sheep from the goats, lest the goats should with their stink infect the flock of the sheep. So he takes the disciples and he leaves and he, he goes to the, the hall of Tyrannus. And we see right here, it's not as though every Jew is henceforth banned from the kingdom of God. Almost everywhere Paul goes, some Jews believe, and it's, it's the nation of Israel as an entity, as a whole, as the ethnic Jewish heritage that has despised Jesus. But individuals may come to Christ, and do come to Christ. Luke even says in verse 10, that as the word of God radiated out from Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks heard that word. So the Jews are not strictly banned from coming to Christ. And I I believe, uh, according to Romans 11, that that there may yet even be an influx of Jews who are converted to Christianity. And that's a very important last phrase. Converted to Christianity. They must come to Christ. They have no advantage by their ethnicity, ethnicity. So the locust, the visible manifestation of God's people, no longer rests in the nation of Israel that rejected their Messiah, but in the church, or more precisely, in Christ, who is true Israel, in whom we are, are united by faith, or the church. So, of course, Jewish individuals are not barred entry, but they must come to Christ, like any other rebel heart must come to Christ, if they will inherit the kingdom of God. So here, yet again, as we have seen throughout Acts, the Jews reject the kingdom of God. They, they decline to attend the banquet to which they were invited. They, the rightful heirs, have rejected the inheritance of the kingdom. And so the word goes out to the highways and byways, and the uninvited become the invited. The wretched refuse become the, the welcomed to the table. That's our second point here. We've seen the rejection of Israel, 
the rightful heirs of the kingdom. Now we see the, the wretched welcomed. In verse 9, But then some people became, some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Tyrannus was probably uh, the donor who built this hall, or the owner or landlord, or the primary teacher there, or a teacher who had taught there but had died and was famous and they named it. They They don't know who this Tyrannus was, but it was clearly some sort of place where teaching and or philosophical lectures took place, primarily in the morning. Uh, Craig Keener says, Public life in Ephesus, including philosophical lectures, ended by noon. Most people in antiquity rested for one or two hours at midday, and advanced education lectures might finish by 11 a.m., uh, so for a couple of ra- hours around noon, they had uh, a siesta. And one writer said that there were more people asleep at 1 p.m. than there were at 1 a.m. So Paul took advantage of this, of this schedule, and he made use of the Hall of Tyrannus. Some manuscripts from the Western tradition include the detail that Paul used the Hall of Tyrannus between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. It's five hours. That variant is probably not original, but interestingly, there seems to be broad consensus that this was an accurate historical detail, which, if the case, is an extraordinary amount of time to be teaching and, and, and reasoning with people. If it was every day for five hours, for two years, that's a total of 3,650 hours of teaching. For perspective, if we have Sunday school, we spend about 156 hours per year in church. And this detail is often used to point out how little time we actually spend in the Word in the modern Western church. And I concur with the sentiment, we do spend so little time, and I fear we do not often live up to the description in Acts 2 that people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the very idea just wears me out, but I was reading this week about the practice of the church at Strasbourg under Martin Bootser. At Strasbourg, they had three sermons a day. 4 a.m., 8 a.m., and 4 p.m., arranged so a person could attend twice. That's daily. On the Lord's Day, they had roughly four services, four, six, eight, and an evening service. This was common among the Reformers. Calvin had a very similar schedule. Now, I'm not proposing that we implement such a schedule here, as I would die from exhaustion. And I realize we're in a different cultural setting, and we don't have an agricultural setting and all the rest. But certainly we can glean that we in the modern Western church do not value teaching and preaching of the Word of God to the degree that we ought. And in fact, we become quite distracted not unlike those initially invited to the banquet, but who were distracted by the cares of the world. 
Now, despite concurring with this sentiment, I don't think we should view this five hours as five hours of worship every day where all the disciples were present all the time. Surely there were many present, many, uh, much of the time, and surely this place and time kind of became a hub and a Christian community of activity and life among the disciples, but I believe it was primarily evangelistic and apologetic in focus. It says, he was there in the hall of Tyrannus reasoning with people. Likely, these people were from all over. They were passing through and hearing Paul speak the word of the Lord. And the result was, we're told, all of Asia, which is the southwestern province of what is now Turkey, the southwestern corner, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jews and Gentiles alike. And we see, once again, the gospel goes out to Jews. They're given the opportunity to respond, and certainly many do, but the gospel is going out into Gentile lands. Again, the, the thrust of Acts is, at this point, into the ends of the earth. We know that Paul never visited the, the cities of Colossae or Laodicea or Hierapolis, which are in this southern region of Asia. And yet, they heard the word of the Lord. Churches were established there. So whether there were people coming from far and wide to hear this man Paul, or whether people were coming through the city and then going out to these lands, or whether people were being saved and then carrying out the message in in missionary endeavors, likely all three were happening. The Lord was sending the invitations far and wide to the Gentile lands. I just like to imagine Epaphras, the the pastor in Colossae, Uh, perhaps he heard about this man Paul and traveled, or perhaps he came through the city of Ephesus, but maybe he was saved in this setting and and was discipled and then went out and went and evangelized his own city of Colossae and and the neighboring cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. We don't know, but that's something of what was going on here. To this scene, this is the most tragic and also most wonderful turn of events in redemptive history. Tragic because the Jews have rejected the gospel. They've rejected their Messiah. But it's altogether glorious because in the Lord's plan, it was never meant for just the Jews alone. The nations of the earth were to be blessed. As we read last week from Isaiah 49, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Paul came to the Jews in Ephesus preaching the kingdom of God, pleading, reasoning, persuading. Will you not submit to your own king, the great Son of David has come. Your Messiah has come. He reigns on high. Will you believe in Him? Will you bend the knee to Him? And they said, no. We speak evil of that way. They received their invitation to the great banquet and they did not RSVP. So, Christ reached out to the Gentile, to the wretched refuse of the world, to those lost and without God in the world, to to the idolatrous and unclean. And he's called us into his kingdom and said, Will you join the king at his banquet? Will you be my honored guests? Will you come and become heirs and partakers with me in my kingdom? 
Thus what Jesus told us has come to pass in Matthew 21.43. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, Jews, and be given to a people producing its fruit. The rightful heirs of the kingdom rejected the kingdom, and the wretched refuse were welcomed. And thus the glorious mystery has been revealed from Ephesians. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is an extraordinary, humbling kindness that God would do for us, for Gentiles. And it leads us to ask the question, What is our proper response to all of this? I have three responses. We could have many. My first response to this is that we should be the people producing the fruits of the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. What are the fruits of the kingdom? Well, first, there's... Fruits on an internal level and on the individual heart. God changes the heart. The the means of entrance into the kingdom is heart change. It's belief in the Lord Jesus. I always return in my mind to Colossians. And Paul says in chapter 1, The gospel is bearing fruit for you and increasing in the whole world, or even as it does in the whole world. The gospel is bearing fruit in you. So we are transformed, we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, so as to walk in a manner worthy of Him. So if we will, we will be members of the kingdom of God, kingdom of priests, our holy nation, we must truly be united to Christ by faith. There's no other way to be a member of this kingdom. If we will bear fruit on the outside, we must be vitally connected to the vine through faith. Calvin says, The kingdom consists first in free forgiveness of sins, whereby God reconciles us to himself and adopts us to be his people. Secondly, in the newness of life, whereby he fashions and makes us like to his own image. Which means, secondly, there are external fruits. The life of Christ in us causes us to live in a particular way to the benefit of ourselves and to those around us, both outside and inside the household of God. According to Colossians 3, our earthly vocations flow from the heavenly kingdom. In chapter 3, we see that we love the church, joining in mutual forbearance and love, teaching and admonishing one another, joining together in praise and thanksgiving. That's a fruit of the kingdom in us. Likewise, we love our families, husbands loving and caring for wives, wives submitting to husbands, children obeying parents, parents not provoking children. And also those under authority, submitting to authority and working hard as unto the Lord. And those in authority being just and fair before the Lord. And our speech toward unbelievers being gracious 
and seasoned with salt. These are all fruits of the kingdom, fruit of the kingdom of heaven in us. And this kingdom fruit is so simple, isn't it? Church, family, vocation. And yet it's so difficult to do the simple things. How hard it is for us men to love our wives like we're supposed to. How hard it is to work heartily as to the Lord and not for men. But as reborn people being fashioned into the image of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit and by grace, and in the hope of of the inheritance of the kingdom, uh, as Jan helpfully demonstrated to us last week, what an extraordinary impact this fruit can have on our lives and the lives of the people that live around us. Just by doing basic Christian things. So first, we should bear the fruit of the kingdom. Second, we should not take it for granted. We should not take it for granted. Romans 11, Paul reminds us of this, 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are a member, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Do not take it for granted. Remember what what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Do not take the kingdom of God in us for granted. Do not take our salvation for granted. In our context, it may not be our first thought to think, Oh, the Jews were broken off and we've been grafted in, so I'm somehow superior. But we do take our salvation and our engrafting for granted. How easily it happens that we begin to rely on some other identity which we may associate with Christ but is not Christ. Oh, I'm from such and such a family or I grew up in such and such a church or I have been baptized or I'm just not a half bad dude. Or, or, or I live in a Christian nation, or I, su- I support the right causes. I think, I, I think I'm good. Or we can kind of have that attitude, even though we would never say that out loud. But do not take it for granted. In our own hard hearts, we can be just like those who ignored the invitation to the banquet. I have so much to do, other things pressing on me. I don't have time for a banquet. And besides, aren't all the good things I'm doing better than a feast anyways? But don't let your duties become a substitute for for glorifying and enjoying God forever. That's the highest mark of those who are heirs of the kingdom, is that we enjoy God. So don't take the kingdom of God for granted, but seek first the kingdom. Third, we should offer our praise and thanks. We should offer our praise and thanks. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the response. That's the first response of the Gentiles who came into the banquet. That should be our first response. Gratefulness, praise, and thanksgiving. We should turn to doxology. So understand that if you are a Gentile, and you are, by my reckoning, you are one of those who was alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and without God in the world, and you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were a people that was not God's people and have been made God's people, a a foolish nation. You were the wretched, you 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 were the outsider, and you have been welcomed to dine with the king. You've been made an heir of the kingdom of God. So does that fill your heart with joy? That's the question. Does it simultaneously move you to stand, taking your mat in hand and jumping and singing for joy, but on the other hand, falling prostrate before the Lord of glory and saying, thank you, I'm not worthy of this mercy. I'll leave you with uh, the doxology from the Apostle John. And I pray that each one of us feels it in our hearts from Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, let's take our hymnals and we'll stand and sing a hymn of response. Arise, O God, 442. Yeah.